0: Good afternoon. Um, my name is Ben Campkin, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to today's UCL Minds Lunch Hour Lecture to be given by Professor Ian Borden. Uh, before we begin, I'm just uh, going to announce that the event is being live streamed and also recorded on video and audio for a podcast um, and for UCL's YouTube channel. Uh, and also there's a hashtag on the banner here um, if you wanted to tweet about the event. So, before Ian presents, um, I'm delighted to say a few words of introduction. Ian is Professor of Architecture and Urban Culture and is Vice Dean of Education in the Bartlett, which is UCL's Faculty of the Built Environment. He's a historian and urban theorist whose academic practice is really distinctive, I think, in its being so wide-ranging and public-facing, interdisciplinary, and really original in terms of the objects of Ian's study and his working methods. He's published numerous scholarly works, all of which interrogate the experiential and representational aspects of cities and architecture. So in 2001, he published Skateboarding Space in the City, which I think is a really groundbreaking study of the history and culture of skateboarding and its relationship to urban space. And also was the kernel of his... More recent book, skateboarding, and the city: uh, a complete history. So, Ian's other monographs include Drive: Journeys through film, cities, and landscapes, using film to explore how people experience the city through from the car. And these, and a really impressive body of uh, really disciplinarily uh, paradigm-shifting anthologies have really been very influential within architecture and urban scholarly communities in the UK and internationally. And also way beyond those communities, uh, in the public realm and in the skateboarding community too. Indeed, I think it's really notable that Ian's own academic work has really been driven by his engagements outside of the university as a skateboarder for over 40 years, uh, such as the work that he does advising on skateboarding culture for, uh, in the design of skate parks, for example. So I'm very look- much looking forward to the lecture. I think we're <laughs> in for a multimedia treat. So please, will you join me in welcoming Ian?
1: Thanks, Ben. Um, and thanks to everyone for coming along in your lunch hour. Hope you, um, this proves entertaining and, um, and illuminative. Um, okay, first question. Who's a skateboarder in this room? OK, right, OK, not so many. OK, that, that helps me dial in a little bit. Right, OK. Who would like to be a skateboarder? Maybe we'll ask that question again at the end. OK. Um, right, um, lots of pictures, quite a few video clips. One, I think, is having its world premiere, maybe, in the public realm Today, We'll get to that. Um, skateboarding starts... Oh, we're going to go on a journey. Um, we're going to go from here in California, in the... Um, uh, late 50s, early 1960s, um, into the 1970s, um, some pretty modernist urban spaces. This is Milton Keynes there. And we're going to end up in, in Kabul, in Afghanistan. So we're going to go uh, in the present day. So we're going through sort of 50 years and all over the world in 30 minutes. So um, hold on. Right, so skateboarding starts in California, um, maybe also Florida, maybe also New York, somewhere around 1950, 1950s, when um, kids would ride on these things, uh, scooters. And they were very primitive, pair of roller skates, broken apart, bolt the wheels onto a bit of wood, um, have a crate of um, a fruit or wooden crate, hold onto it. And then at some point they decided that they could do without the holding on bit, and they could, they could skate. You say this is nothing new. You used to do it when you were a kid, and you probably did.
2: No one knows exactly when the box came off, and they took to riding just the plain old 2x4 with the old roller skates. Eventually, this evolved into
1: the modern skateboard.
2: What's this, some new kind of dance? Nope, it's America's newest sport. It's called skateboarding.
1: It's pretty basic activity. You get a bit of wood, two bits of metal, a little bit of t- turning stuff, some wheels and you balance on it and you steer and you go and that's it. And in a way, the skateboard hasn't changed a lot over the last 50 years. It's got more sophisticated in its materials, but it hasn't changed massively. Um, one thing that has changed has been... Um, i not getting my clicker up. Um, one thing that has changed has been the, the wheels. So the, the skateboards we just saw had very hard, very small wheels. And then somewhere in the 1970s, sort of 1973, called Frank Naysworthy realised that you could make wheels out of polyurethane. And this enabled skateboarders to extend the city that they could ride on. And in particular, they found that they could emulate surfing. So that's why you've got these two pictures next to us. And what this guy at the bottom is doing, he's riding up on a schoolyard bank one of the schools in, um, in Kenta, in uh, one of the suburbs of LA, and he's pretending that he's surfing. And this is a sort of foundational moment in skateboarding, where you take something that is not meant to be used for skateboarding, a schoolyard bank, and through the performance of skateboarding, you change it and become something else. Asphalt has become wave through this, through this act. So we're still in the 1970s, and skateboarders found other terrains that they could skate in. If they went out into the Arizona desert, they could find these amazing concrete pipes that were being used for a water uh, distribution project. Um, If they went into some of the backyards of Californian residences, they would find many swimming pools. Many of these swimming pools, if you drain them with water, had curved sides between the walls and the floor, and they found that they could ride up onto the... the the vertical surface of the the walls. And they would scour around neighbourhoods, try and find pools that were already empty, or maybe they'd work out that neighbours were away and they'd have a pump and they would would pump the water out and skate these things illegally. There's a wonderful BBC documentary called Skateboard Kings that was made um, by Horace Ove in 1977-78, and you can find it on YouTube, which follows some of these skaters Doing this. And then we get to a period, so we're now into the late 70s, where the commercial sector realises that there's, there's, there's something going on here. There are millions of skaters in America and across the world and lots of these fantastic purpose-built skate parks are created that you pay to get into. And many of them, they take the kind of terrain that skaters have found. So these are all swimming pools, but now designed from the off for um, skateboarding. So they're, they're simulations of swimming pools, now made very large and very deep. Um, and very challenging to ride. The, the, you know, some of them are sort of four five metres deep and it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a difficult thing to, to um, ride and ride well. And many of these get built all over the world. So top left, one in La Villette, in Paris, top right, one in Tokyo, bottom left, New Zealand, bottom right ROM skate park, which I'll come back to a little later in London. And actually, this one is, I think, the oldest surviving skate park in the world, in New Zealand. It's not in America, um, and it was first built in 1974. So, loads of these skate parks get built, and they all have this kind of amazing riding. And I'd like to say I can do it, but I can't. Um, and it's very performative, um, and it's very dramatic, and it's very challenging. But, um, and it creates a kind of space. I use a lot of the work of um, a French philosopher called Henri Lefebvre when I talk about skateboarding. And one of the things that Henri Lefebvre says about space is it's produced outward from the body. And what the skateboarders are doing here is they're producing a space through their own body, through the skateboard and in relation to the terrain that they're acting upon. So in this formulation, space is not a physical thing, it's a performed thing. Um, And it's performed by bodies and a tool, the skateboard, and the architecture that the skateboarder relates against. And these things come together in kind of a dynamic production. And you could argue that it's... This is why I've got a blurred photograph on the screen. It's very difficult to represent. Maybe it's ineffable. It can't be described in words. Um, And Maybe the video captures some of it, but to some extent, it, it also misses some of the part of the fact that this is a space which only exists as the skater is actually skating. Those skate parks get built in the end of the '70s. Uh, by the early '80s, most of them have gone bust, and they disappear. So these are two of the U.K. skate parks. About 100 get built across the U.K, and nearly all the skate parks across the world get destroyed. Of the big skate parks that were built in the 1970s, the ones with a really large investment, only two still exist in the world today: one in Florida and one in, in Essex, which I'll, which I'll come to. Not all is lost. What skateboarders realise is that actually you don't really need a skate park. What you've got out there if you choose to adapt your riding and do something differently is the whole city is a pleasure ground. And through street skateboarding, which really begins to take off in the mid-80s and really dominates skateboarding in the 1990s, they realise that all you really need is a bit of flat ground and some ledges or some handrails, or um, some steps, or a slope, or a fire hydrant. That These are the objects that you can now perform. You don't need a great big grandiose skate park. This will do. This is Milton Keynes. And they use this move called the ollie. Skaters will know this. It's a move where you stamp on the back of the board and at the same time kind of jump up, and it makes the board fly up into the air um, uh, almost unaided. It's kind of magical. Good. Um, so when I first started work on skateboarding, I was particularly interested in this aspect of it. and In a way, I wanted to see it as a kind of political act. The idea that skateboarding enunciates a political and social critique of the world in which we live. That was the kind of argument. I used a lot of the work of Armory Lefebvre to do this. So how does it do this? Well, one of the most first things, it does it through performing. It does it through the actual act of riding that it is the act of the skateboarder, rather than the words um, or the texts that say something. And I call this performative critique. So what does does this critique say? Well, it says that, first point I guess I've already made, that you don't need a skate park, that the whole city can be a pleasure ground, that all architecture is interesting. Um, So a handrail, which is designed for the purpose of safety, is now the logic of this handrail is sort of turned on its head, and now we've got it as an object of risk and danger and energy. So this is, again, if you think, in a way it's the same thing that that skater was doing on the bank, (coughs) pretending to be a surfer, that it's taking an architecture that was meant for one thing, safety, and now using it for something else, which is risk, danger, delight, energy, um, expression. There's also, I think what's interesting about this, is the fact that skaters use their whole human body. People often talk about the world today that we're expected to perform in a very passive way. People talk about the malefication of urban space, where everything becomes like a shopping mall. We're supposed to walk quite slowly, consume things just with our eyes and maybe with our wallet, but we're not supposed to run um, or, or be loud or be subversive or do anything, really, that isn't kind of walking and buying or maybe going to work. Um, but in particular, what, so one of the things skateboarders say is it's OK to use the whole human body. So the act of skateboarding, maybe like cycling through the city or running through the city or um, a, 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 um, another kind of active way, is also about listening, it's about smelling, it's about touching the architecture, and when you ride a skateboard on cities, you can feel the city come through your, through your feet, through the wheels, through your feet, up through your body. The, the, the texture of the pavement comes up into you, and that's a... Le Faire, of course, is the reassertion of the human body. Other things that happen is that obviously skaters create new maps of the city, of different ways, of different locales and different ways of mapping it. They critique architecture, and in particular, I think they critique the idea that architecture should be thought of as grand monuments by famous architects in recognisable style. So Ben and I both teach in an architecture school, in the Bartlett School of Architecture. A lot of our students are, uh, are architectural design students, and quite rightly, they're focused on design, but what practices like skateboarding also say is that if you if you use the city in a different way, actually you don't care who the designer is or who the building, who the, what the building is. You don't care if it's designed by Zaha or Norman. What you care about is, is there a good rail outside that you can skate on? So this is a, this is a group of people who are absolutely passionate about architecture but don't interested in it in the way that we might be interested in it um, in, in terms of who the architects are and the designers and so on. There's a critique in here of how we use our cities. I talked about the malification of space, the idea that we, we purchase, rent and consume space, often with our wallet. Well, skateboarding is pretty much, once you've bought your board, it's not that expensive. Even a top flight skateboard is £150. The cheap one is much less. You go out to the city, you can consume it without paying. So this idea that, that The city should be a pleasure ground and not just a work ground or not just a consumer ground. One of the other things that people often talk about in public space is the idea of the right to the city. And Orin Lefebvre and David Harvey and many other people have talked about this. And on one level, this is about the access to the city. Who has the right to be in a place? Who has the right to have access to a space. And that's important. But there's another kind of right to the city, which is also important, which is the right to become the person that you want to be. And I think skateboarding is one of those practices that not only gives different people kind of access to city, but it enables them to express and to develop and to create and to test the kind of person that they want to be. So this person, Marie de Baddy, is a um, non-gender... This is how they think of themselves, a non-gender-specific person who uses skateboarding and their interest in punk music to create their identity in relation to the city. And they have moved to Malmö in Sweden because this is a city which particularly welcomes those two activities of punk music and, um, and skateboarding. This also sometimes produces and creates a counter-reaction by city authorities. So we often get these kinds of devices, skate-stoppers. This is the supposedly public space next to the GLA headquarters in London, where if you try and skate, well, you you can't because there are skate-stoppers there, but the security guards will also come along and turf you out. And this creates a kind of confrontation often between street skaters and city authorities. So, particularly during the 1980s and 90s, at the height of street skateboarding, you got this idea that skateboarding was a kind of opposition to mainstream culture, an opposition to authority, stood against um, the city. You know, there were phrases like skate and destroy, skate or be stupid. And this was kind of the ideology of skateboarding dominant ideology in the 90s, and it was very male. So, these are all teams of skateboarders, um, 1988, 2012, right up to still persist to some extent today, where skateboarding is often coded as male, particularly through street skateboarding. So, everything that I've said so far, I sort of wrote about in the first book that Ben mentioned in his introduction, which you see on the left. And so, everything I'm going to say from now on is sort of what's happened since 2001 and why I think skateboarding has moved on from that purely countercultural and oppositional position. So these are all skateboarders. In this picture, there are graphic designers. Uh, where are we? So graphic designers, a scaffolder, a mental health nurse, someone who's unemployed, an accountant, um, some preschool kids, and a corporate lawyer. Um, that's the corporate lawyer just there. <laughs> um, yeah, he earns more money than probably all of us in this room together. Um, skateboarders are much more diverse. So they can be of all different um, uh, um, uh, backgrounds. They can be old, they can be different ethnicity, they can be young and female. They can... Um, this is a guy called Aaron Fotheringham. Okay, he's not on a skateboard, he's in a WCMX wheelchair, but you get my point. Um, they can be blind. This is Dan Mancina, who's a blind skateboarder skating at an event that ucl did with the smithsonian and inner skate at one of our campus sites in east london last may and they can skate even if they've not got any legs So um, these are often called adaptive skateboarders. So because a skateboard or a wheelchair is a mobility device, it already has in it the possibility that people with physical challenges can um, reach out and express themselves in ways that, that perhaps they, you know, one wouldn't have thought they would ordinarily have been able to do. And this is a really interesting part of skateboarding and WCMX that's kind of taking off a bit at the moment. Other things that have happened, skate parks have come back. Somewhere around 2000, 2005, 2010, particularly over the last five or 10 years, we've seen an explosion of skate parks around the world, particularly as councils and charities have realised that this is a really good way to reach parts of society who, who maybe don't want to play football or can't commit to playing a team sport once a week. Um, it's an activity which you can take up and use in your own, your own time. And skate parks are a really good way, and actually quite cheap way, it's just a bit of concrete, um, to, to provide a, a, a leisure facility and improve physical and mental health for those people. So we're seeing a huge range of these. And unlike the ones in the 1970s, nearly all of these, not all of them, are free, open-access facilities. You don't pay to go in. I'll just give you some examples of these. This one's in, uh, one that I was involved in in South East London, affectionately known as Bloblands. It's a converted paddling pool. It costs £50,000 to do. It's dirt cheap. You know, it's a, it's a very small budget. Sometimes skaters will even build a small skate park themselves. There's a big DIY culture going on in skateboarding at the moment where you might appropriate a bit of land somewhere, work some concrete and build your own skate park. Uh, this is another one that I was involved in. So this is my local skate park. If you want to come see me skate, you have to come here on a Saturday or Sunday, see me fall off. Um, and this is a sort of medium-sized skate park, and it has a pool, and it has a bowl, and it has a kind of str- simulated street area. This was its opening jam um, just over a year ago. Some of them are very beautiful. This is next to a UNESCO... Uh, 16th-century fortress in Luxembourg and so has been designed with this rather beautiful concrete. Some of them are in rather extravagant. This is under construction in Folkestone at the moment. It's the world's first multi-storey skate park. It's costing around £14 million, pounds, being funded by, a, um, by Roger Dehaan and the uh, Dehaan Charitable Trust. So that will be open later this year. Some of them are (laughs) five-star. If you like Hard Rock Cafe and you want to go to a Hard Rock five-star hotel in Mexico and go skateboarding during the day and have sea bass and salsa in the evening, you can. It's quite expensive. Um, If you want to do an artistic project, then there are all kinds of artistic skate parks. This is a (coughs) glow-in-the-dark skate park in France. Um, There are actually three of these, one in Everton, in Liverpool, one in France, which you see here, and actually top right, a temporary installation in Milan. Some skate parks don't look like skate parks. This is another scheme I was peripherally involved in in Milton Keynes. So this is a skate park that wasn't really announced as a skate park, it was just a set of ledges and benches that sort of simulated the urban realm and provided a place for people to skate without kind of saying, this is a skate park where you should You should skate. And this has been very influential as a prototype for how you might design um, skateboard spaces for street skating. This is an installation by Raphael Zarka, a French artist. So this is a street in Paris, which is part of which is given over to skateboarding, Rue Cladel. Innsbruck, it's Landhausplatz, welcome skateboarding. So you can, no skate stoppers here. um, it's, It's amenable to skateboarding and BMX and eating your lunch and all the other things that people would do in an open plaza. This is a water plaza in Rotterdam, which is designed to be flooded at different times. So you obviously wouldn't skate then. But maybe at other times of the year, this guy is here, you can skate it. So these are all ideas about how you don't necessarily have to build a skate park. You can build a skatable space, a bit of the public realm, which is accessible and welcoming of skateboarding rather than kicking it out. And UCL is developing some new buildings over on the Olympic site in, in Stratford, on the Queen Elizabeth Park. And one of the things I and a few other people are trying to do is to make sure that the spaces between those buildings will be kind of you know, something like this, that they will be open to skateboarding and welcoming to skateboarding and not exclusive of it. Skateboarding's also been part of heritage debates. So, some of you will know this. This was the Undercroft area in uh, London where the idea was to move the skaters out and put in retail opportunities. Um, 150,000 people signed the petition to stop this happening. And in a way, they were supporting the skateboarders, but I think what they were really saying is we don't want yet another sushi cappuccino opportunity. That, that actually everybody wants to see sort of stuff like this and not just the shopping mall stuff. And then this is the Rom skate park, which I showed earlier. So this is one of the two remaining full size skate parks in the world from the 1970s. And I think actually it's probably. It lays claim to being the biggest and the best. It's the most original. It's hardly been changed. We managed to get it grade two listed in 2014. And it's an extraordinary place for its architecture and the people there. And there's a film which Matt Harris, Settler, has been directing or producing for the last three years. The film will be out later this year, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, okay and so we've got the first, I think, public premiere of the final trailer for it coming up. This place is a predator and and you're the prey man and some days it will let you get away with it, other days it will chew you up and spit you out.
2: You've got to be scared of it. If you come here and you're not scared of it, you're an idiot because you're going to get hurt. Twisted ankles, dislocated knees. I've knocked myself out, knocked my teeth out.
0: There are a certain
1: type of people they are. I was registered disabled for a while. They told me probably never gonna walk without a stick. You
2: do forget how to ride a bike. Let me tell you.
1: There's less judgmental people at a skate park than there is in a church.
2: I'd like to say it was weirdos at first.
1: What, grow up and be an adult? <laughs> uh,
2: that.
1: was what was kind of described as like the triple threat. But I still had
2: this rage inside me. There was this war with the skateboarders. Yeah, you have got non Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I thought, you know, I've got to try and live again. It's special, you know.
1: You, you go all over the world. People know this place.
2: It's just amazing. This is old school. It's this is an amazing place to be. It's quite intimidating, you know. No one knew how to make a skate park. They just started pouring concrete. It was all experimental. It's absolutely extraordinary. When you
1: think about it, If I couldn't drive past here and not come in. I don't think my car would let me. I'd have to go the long way around. <laughs> It's an incredibly valuable piece of architecture.
2: I was going bankrupt, I was going to shut. It's on its arse at the moment, there's a business, but they still keep it going. No one here on No one. Not one. It's giving back, it's being part of a inspiring journey to try and get this place full of life again. We don't get some help, the place going, go in complete disrepair, to be quite honest. It's history, don't, don't just stop that, man. And something that these guys that rode 40 years ago is keeping them riding means it's right. I hear rumors that it's in trouble at the moment, and this is one of the most iconic skate parks there is on the planet. boys
1: does is it raises. I think this idea that skateboarding is more valuable, it's, it's valuable to skateboarders, but it's valuable to kind of social lives and to heritage and to a sense of place and a sense of community. And we're beginning to see this side of skateboarding really develop. And sometimes it's in quite maybe predictable but fantastic ways. So skateboarding will be in the 2020 Olympics, it will be in the 2024 Olympics. We're already getting people like this person, Sky Brown, who's an 11 year old female skater who's going to probably almost certainly be skating for Britain in the Olympics. She's already getting huge publicity around her achievements. And I think we're going to see a lot more publicity around skateboarding, and particularly female skateboarding, as a result. Just a few other things to finish up on about how skateboarding is extending outside itself. Million-dollar brands, so vans here down at the bottom, all these brands are associated with skateboarding. Some of them are very big. Some of them are very small. Vans turns over over $2 billion a year. Skateboarding is an entrepreneurial activity as well as a countercultural one. There's all kinds of, as we've seen throughout this, film, photography, graphic design, creativity associated with skateboarding, some amazing writing. These are this is my collection of skateboard books. Really amazing actually writing, particularly on the web now, on Insta. Um, on um, on blogs, on websites, a huge range of artists associated with skateboarding, outsider artists, street artists, video artists. I give a whole day's talk just about the art associated with skateboarding. But it's also extending into social institutions. So many schools now will offer skateboarding as an alternative PE. I live off opposite a primary school in. Um, Hearn Hill in South London and that primary school will take some of its kids out to the local park on boards and they'll do that as, as well as playing you know, um, their other sports. And from there we're even seeing whole schools which are use skateboarding as their central underpinning. So the FAR Academy in Kent does incredible work with um, kids who perhaps have not got on well with a traditional school. Brigariet, which means the brewery in Malmö in Sweden, has a whole high school, secondary school that's kind of framed around skateboarding values and activities. Both are very successful. And this brings me to my sort of last sort of example and point about skateboarding, which is being used now as a kind of grab, as a way to engage with youth who who perhaps were difficult to um, engage with, and sometimes in some very troubling and difficult circumstances. So um, in refugee camps, in Native American reservations, in Johannesburg, in Palestine, uh, skateboarding is not really the the destination, but it's the journey. And I just want to give you one example of this to finish up on. So probably the best known of these skate charities is something called Skatistan in Kabul, in Afghanistan, it's been going for over 10 years now. And it uses skateboarding um, as a way to connect with youth and to bring education uh, into their lives. It's quite a gendered project, and I'll just show you a, a short video that explains
0: Children make up 70% of the population of Afghanistan.
2: Kids often only have uh, roadsides that are filled with rubbish and cars and there's no place for them in the society here so the result is they tend to grow up very quickly.
0: Girls aren't allowed to ride bicycles here, they're not allowed to climb over fences.
2: We had to teach the boys that no they couldn't push the girls off the board and they had equal rights to be in that particular space. To become a good skateboarder
0: you just have to lose your fear and they don't have any fear in the first place. What Skater Stand is about is engaging kids through skateboarding and then giving them other skills. If kids grow up with guns and that's all that they know, then they're going to use guns later on or they're going to use violence to solve problems. For us it's more about breaking the cycle of violence.
2: We found skateboarding to be such a fantastic tool for communication. We get kids from all sorts of ethnicities building relationships with each other. So we've got Hazara kids skateboarding with Tajik kids, and we've also got girls skateboarding as well. People in other countries can see that these kids don't all want to strap explosives to themselves, and uh, they're actually kids. And I think skateboarding's given them a little bit of confidence. We want them to be problem solvers, to be part of the reconstruction of their country. We want them to have a voice.
1: Okay, so that we've kind of come to the end to our journey. We've, end, we've gone from some suburban middle-class kids in Los Angeles, and we've ended up in a pretty tough part of the world in Kabul, and skateboarding's been part of that thread. In the conclusion to um, my book, I talk about whether uh, it's a question, really, whether skateboarding is a magnificent life.) Um, and by that I mean that it, there's something in it, and I don't think it's a unique, I'm not claiming unique things, it, but it's something about skateboarding that suggests it suggests a different way of living in cities. It suggests that it's OK to have people who are young and old and different body shapes and different attitudes and ethnicity and class backgrounds. It suggests that we want our city to have spectacular architectures but also everyday places that we can be and dwell, and that things are equally important. It suggests that um, we should use our whole body, that we shouldn't just consume with our eyes and our wallet. And indeed, that there's all kinds of creativity that we can produce in our everyday lives. And this doesn't always mean creating amazing paintings or artworks or music. Sometimes it is those things, but a kind of creative practice as part of everything that we do. And it's a a world that, it's kind of equal. If a world-class skateboarder rocks up at a skate park, she or he will just ride that skate park as an equal with everybody else. It's a very flat kind of structure. Yes, it does have its superstars and it does have people and lots of money. But it's not kind of like rock music that way. It's very kind of flat and everyone has an equal right and everyone produces the culture together and I think increasingly in the last point is that skateboarding suggests that that it's not also just what we do it's the way it relates to other people and the way that we can encourage diversity and how we can work with people who are not as well off always and as privileged as ourselves and skateboarding is a connecting device and it's also an enabling device and somehow all of that is wrapped up in it. So it's no longer, I think, that's where I think it's moved away from this just sort of countercultural, two fingers up at the rest of the world to become quite a complex entity and I don't think there's any one kind of skateboarding anymore. There are lots of skateboarding and lots of different skateboarders. Uh, It's become plural, it's become diverse and I think it engages with the city in all kinds of of, of different ways. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much Ian. That was a really wonderful, uh, eclectic and informative and entertaining journey that you've taken us on there. Um, We do have some time for questions. So perhaps while you're formulating yours, I will start with mine if that's okay. So please um, raise your hand if you have a question and uh, please wait until the microphone gets to you as well because the event's being recorded. Um, But Ian, I'd like to take you back to when you first decided to study skateboarding. Oh yeah. And you know, we live in an age where a skateboard park can be listed but I was just wondering what was the reaction in architectural history when you decided to start skating studying skateboarding and also what was the reaction amongst the skateboarding community?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> the, the reason I got into it was kind of accidental because, you know, I'd been a skater in the late 70s and I was a student at UCLA in Los Angeles and we were all asked to write... A, um, I was doing a class on the history of Los Angeles and we were asked to write a term paper on something to do with the architecture of LA that no one else in the room knew about. And I thought, well, what the hell do I know about LA that no one else in this room... Oh, skateboarding. So it, became, it was almost a sort of... So that's, that's where it began. Um, and yeah, the reactions have been generally very... It would be very favourable. Sometimes librarians have said, why do you want to order skateboard magazines and skateboard books through interlibrary loan and have kind of questioned that. But 99% of the reaction, I think, has been very... Well, from what my perspective, has been very favourable, and I think academia over the last 20, 30 years has, as we know, has moved in a much more interdisciplinary and open manner. Um, and there has been an interest in, in you know, all kinds of intersections. So in my work, is it architectural history? Yes. Is it film studies? Yes. Is it gender studies? Yes. Is it ethnography? Yes. Is it, you know, it's kind of got a bit of everything in it. Um, so, the I, Yeah. Um, that, I think it's quite a rich subject which helped people engage in, in different ways. And now a very big field in terms of and the now number quite, of people work, working in it. A lot yeah. more academic. Yeah. When I started working in the 90s, there were only two of us doing it, myself and a sociologist called Becky Beale. So my PhD is on skateboarding and there are two academic references in it and both of them are to Becky's work. <laughs> Thanks, Becky.
0: <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, does anybody have a question or comment? OK, there's one at the
1: back. Hi Neil, uh, happy Thursday, we've met before,
2: I've skated the at Palace, but not the point I'm here for. Uh, given some of the barriers skateboarders face in developing skateboarding, what are your thoughts on the idea of a public assembly or some democratic
1: organisation in the city to bring skateboarders together to help them overcome the challenges that skateboarders face in developing skateboarding in the city? Yeah, well that's an interesting idea. I mean, as we know, that one of the interesting things about skateboarding is how resistant they've been to organisation and, 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 and groups. So, I guess the closest we've got to that now is Skateboard England, which is a... you know, there is now a governing body for skateboarding, which, you know, but it's not... I wouldn't say it's a democratic voice for, for skateboarding in general. Um, I guess Long Live Southbank did that in mobilising very effectively around the Southbank campaign. Um, so, I think it's probably around... I think the Long Live South Bank's particularly interesting because it was mobilised a particular moment and a particular urgency. I'm not sure if, you would ma- if one could get a democratic representation of skateboarders as a, you know, other than through a kind of governing sport body. Um, it's an interesting idea. Uh, I think uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Ian helped organise an event called Piffin Book. A couple of years ago, Ian helped organize a thing called Pushing Borders, which was an academic skateboarding conference and it brought people across the world to London to discuss skateboarding. And given how successful it was, I would be keen to talk to you after regarding a London skateboarding conference per se. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, I'll talk to you after. Thank you and happy first, everyone. Yeah. So Pushing Borders, I should say, was organized by two of my PhD students, Sander Holstens and Tom Callan. With Skate Pal and with Long Live South Bank, I, I helped raise a bit of money for it and went in its UCL. And They had a second event in Malma last year. Um, there'll probably be one somewhere else in a couple of years' time.
0: Watch this space. Okay, there's another question at the front.
1: Hi, it's uh, really interesting that you managed to get a skate park uh, grade two listing. Um, well done. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on trying to get more urban spots sort of recognised? I mean, a lot of them are kind of disappearing now like Fairfield's yeah. half of Southbank when it's not like yeah. it used to be when I was growing yeah. up and um, yeah. and other spots like you know yeah. Shell Centre and things like that I think that's good. I mean it would be great if that could happen I mean obviously the nature of it is that it's very difficult to list in a very everyday mm. spot and Southbank has now got a section 106 agreement on it so yes it's not the same as when we might remember it yeah. from skating back <laughs> in the day yeah. but it's kind of preserved. I'm in two minds. You know, there's something about, particularly with street skateboarding, it is about the transient, it is about the ephemeral, it is about adapting. And the, the wonderfulness of those places is the skateboarding that's gone in them rather than the, in just the architecture in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, I mean, there are too many of the places around the world that are seminal skate spots that, mm. have, that have disappeared. Yeah. Um, I guess MACBA you know, there are places that if they're not preserved legally then they've been accepted and recognised as skateboarding places mm. um, it would be nice to see that built more into city planning and to city concerns about recognising that skateboarding is an important and valuable part of everyday urban activity yeah, and that's yeah. probably the way to go it I don't think there's going to be much joy going down the the formal listed heritage route. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think we've probably, you know, ROM has been listed and that's it in the UK. I can't see anywhere else being listed as well.
0: Enormous amount amount of labour that goes in from voluntary organisations to do those processes too as well. Um, Thanks. Sorry, we just probably have time for two more quick questions. So there's one at the back next and then one at the front.
1: Hi, that was really interesting, thank you. Um, I just wanted to follow on from that point, actually, that the ROM is now closed down, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering if there's anything that could be actually done about that, because I hadn't realised the significance of that skate park. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I I'm don't know looking if the skateboard, skateboard community <laughs> could galvanise itself and yeah. do something the, about the there ROM. Is,
1: uh, there is stuff that's happening. Matt Harris, who sat there, director of but is probably the main person who's really working hard on that. I'm very, very peripherally involved with it myself. Um, but there I- let's just say there are things happening. It's not permanently closed. We are hoping that it will. There will be a resurgence later in, and, and we can say something about it later in the year. Thanks. I'm just say I'm just here on behalf of my 13-year-old son. Okay. Yeah. 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 But well, that's that's great to hear. That's great to hear. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, so, there was one last question here, please.
2: Thanks, Hi. Thanks for that. Really interesting. Um, you've talked so brilliantly about kind of the evolution of skateboarding culture and architecture to now. Where do you sort of see it going in oh, the next few decades? I don't
1: know where it will go. Where I'd like to see it go is more of those public spaces. I'd like to see skateboarding much more integrated and welcome within. So, I'd like more of those water plazas, more of the Innsbruck, more. I'm really hopeful that we, the UCL can help show the way on this a little bit with our. Work in, around the, the projects that, that are going on in um, the Queen Elizabeth site, so that I think is for me is the future. There is a danger with skateboarding being the Olympics; it'll be get treated as a sport, and everyone who doesn't know about skateboarding think, oh, we need to build training facilities. We need to build you know sports gymnasia where they can learn their tricks in foam pits and so on. And that, that is yes, but that isn't. The only bit of skateboarding and i think it's really important that other spaces and multiple spaces are produced as well so i think it's sort of everyday spaces skate parks and advanced sports facilities it needs those three things to to go at the same time so i'd like to and i think the last two are easy the most difficult one but the one i hope to see more of is that multiple skatable urban space Um, yeah. yeah, maybe. I that's something that I I, I, It's not, the problem isn't with architect. It's not, there's no problem with design. There's lots of ways of designing it. Most architects are very open, very generous, very imaginative And what the, the, the issue is with the planning and the government, uh, governance and the usage and that side of things. That's where the block is. It's not in the capacity to design, it's in the capacity to see the social health and uh, benefits from those. And I guess that's where some of the work that, little bit the work that I do, but lots and lots of other people do even much more work than I do to try and make that awareness happen.
0: Okay, and I'm afraid we have to wrap things up. I can see people waiting at the door. So please will you join me in thanking again for a really fantastic lecture. <laughs>